Um, this week, as we'll jump back into the, the book of Acts, as we've spent several weeks there through the first five chapters so far, we'll continue through here. We were so glad to have Brother Richard Moore with us last week. Enjoyed the word that he brought, the, the, the power and the spirit that he brought it with for his obedience and, and delivering it. And I pray that you uh, took away from it that, that we don't have to be afraid, that we serve a God that, like we said, is in control of everything, that he is our God, and that as we are obedient to him, following his footsteps, things might be weary. There might be difficult times. We might have all kinds of things that the world and the enemy would desire for us to be afraid of. But our Heavenly Father is, is over all things. Amen. And we do not have to be afraid. But this week will be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We're going to be talking about leading... The church. Some of you might look at that statement and say, well, that already means that I don't have to worry about this sermon or it's not important to me. You might already have read these verses this week or the past couple of weeks and been like, oh, he's going to hit on this and it doesn't really per- pertain to me. It is irrelevant to my situation. But what I hope we understand by the end of this sermon is that leading the church is not just the responsibility of the few, but the responsibility of the whole. Amen. That is all. It is something that we all play a part in, that we all serve a role in, that we all are called to, to connect connect with and do something within the leadership of the church to lead the church towards the Bible says the mark of the high calling that he has established for us and I'm thankful that we as a body can do great things as we lead the church even in the world that we live in today amen but Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 is the scripture that we'll be reading from today um, we'll have it up here you can follow along in the scriptures but it says now in those days When the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, and the twelve is the the apostles, Peter, James, John, those, and everything. Uh, The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should lead the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren... Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we uh, we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Proterus, and Nicanor, and and Timon, and uh, Permenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed... They laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Man, that's the, the scripture that we are, are reading from this week. And I want to uh, just give some context for just a minute. Um, the scriptures here at the beginning of it talked about how there was a complaint amongst the, the people there, the followers in this group in this area at this time, between the, the, the Hellenists and, and, the, and the Jews, right, the Hebrew Jews. Um, and I want us to understand what, what's happening here. At, at the time of history, this, there was a, a Jewish tradition of what they called the kufa, or the passing of the basket, right? Where leaders in the community, usually it was leaders from out of the temple, out of, out of that area, would go around to the businesses in the market, would go down around to private residences, and take up what we understand today as an offering, right? They would take up alms to then go around to those that are needy in the Jewish community and give that wealth, give those that alms, the whatever was given, to those that were in need. They had different structures set up for those that were going through a temporary thing, for those that were going through a prolonged thing, for those that had a pressing matter that just happened right then. They had a very good structure of how to handle it. And as the Christian church began to rise here in Jerusalem, and as Peter and them began to establish things, they took on this same tradition, right? Of this, the basket. 
the Cooper, the passing of the basket, the passing of the tray. And what we see here, the complaint that is occurring, is that the Hellenists, Hellenists were Jews that were not born in Jerusalem. They were Jews that came from other areas. Maybe it was, we understand that the Jewish people were scattered about, the Bible tells us that at different times, that they were put under captivity at different times, and some of them didn't go home immediately. But what we know is that at the day of Pentecost, there were people from all areas of the world, right? And those that came in and that had converted or those that accepted this, the, the message of the gospel were considered the Hellenist Jews, Hellenist Jews were the followers of Christ at that point, from outside of the realm. But then you also had the Hebrew Jews which were born in Jerusalem, okay? And I know this is a lot of stuff, but I want us to understand what's going on here because what we see is that the Hellenist Jews, the ones that were far off, it didn't, you know, weren't from the area, they were getting a, a different level of treatment um, by the ones that were already established within the local Jewish community and things like that. And that is when this complaint was brought to the Twelve, brought to the Apostles, and the Apostles set about to find a solution to this. Their solution was to have leaders from the group basically take care of this issues. But I want to understand that they established a great principle that even we today need to understand, that need to live out in our own lives when we are thinking about how we lead our church. Okay? How we lead the church. Leading the church is so important. And many times in our culture, and our society, in the churches that we are raised in, a lot of times we are just used to a few people making the decisions, pulling the weight, doing things. But that is not the example we see here. It is not the example that we see through the fullness of Scripture that leading the church is something that we also take some interest or some focus on because we are leading the church as we go towards Christ for our young people, for those that are lost, for those that are in need, for those that are far off. We are leading the church. Amen. But there are attributes that we see in this scripture that really point out that what it needs, what we need to have, what we need to focus on if we are to effectively lead the church. The first one is that we must be humble. We must be humble. The second verse of this scripture that we read says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should lead the word of God and serve tables. And serve tables tables. The work that they were asked to do was not an easy task. I don't know if anybody has ever worked in customer service or food service or anything like that. When you are serving people, it is not usually of a great enjoyment to yourself. It is not usually something that you leave work that day and just feel renewed and rejuvenated and excited and looking forward to going to work tomorrow. Serving these tables and what they were asked to do was a difficult thing. And they use the term serving the tables, but that's just a really glossed over phrase of what they really truly did. These are people that were going into houses, that were people were just destitute and going through problems and issues. They were going to people that nobody else would have anything to do with, the lepers, the ones that are outcasts, the ones that had these sicknesses, all these kind of things. They were going to places that nobody else wanted to go, talking to people that nobody else wanted to talk to, ministering and loving those that nobody else wanted to have anything to do to this is what they were asked to do and here we see these men right that were picked out these 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 ones these individuals that that the bible tells us that stephen was a man that was full of the holy spirit we don't know what his dreams or ambitions were what he might have thought he was going to do but here he was and he and they come to him they say hey we want you to to serve tables right i don't know about you you ever been at work and you've been waiting for that promotion. 
You've been waiting on things to get better. You've been waiting on take that step up. And your boss comes to you. It's like, hey, I, I've got something. And you know that there's been an opening that's recently come up, right? And he's like, hey, I, I need to ask you something. i got something I want you to do. And you're like, here it is. My hard work's paid off. My, my obedience has paid off. My faithfulness has paid off. I'm, I'm about to get this, this promotion. Things are about to change for me. Things are looking up for me. And he says, the custodian didn't show up today. I need you to go, go clean the bathroom. It's like, man, you know what? You know, here he is, Stephen and all these other ones. They obviously had some kind of good reputation, right? That's what the Scripture says. Find seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. These were men that had served, that had committed their lives to doing what God had wanted them to do. They had committed and, and converted to, from this faith into Christianity, believers Christ as the Savior of the world, and here they are. And these come up to him and says, hey, we've got something we want to ask you to do. Right? Here just a few chapters ago, Matt Matthias got promoted to an apostle. Maybe Stephen's like, well, I'm going to be the 13th one. I don't know. We want you to go serve tables, Stephen. We want you to go into these communities that there's issues with, there's problems with, there's conflict between these two parties. We want you to build this bridge. We want you to minister to both groups. We want you to help people. We want you to go to things and do things that other people that really we don't even want to do. We want you to do this, Stephen. And he had to come to a point, as we all do, to humble himself, to recognize that doing what God had called him to do was more important than what he thought, or maybe what he desired, right? We see that Stephen was a, was a faithful man, a good man, but we all have our, our own issues, things that we rest with, right? And the thing is, what they were asked to do was not comfortable. And we live in a society where we prioritize and highly value comfort, Right? We just desire comfort. Everything that happens that we make a progress in with our technology, with our cars, with everything, with our homes, what's it to do? It's to make things more comfortable. To make our life more comfortable. But we look at Scripture, we especially look at the early church, and, and what we see is that nowhere in Scripture or the early church do they value or prioritize comfort. Do they say, does Stephen ever ask, well, will I be comfortable doing this? Will it be pleasant for me to go to these places? Will I have a good time ministering in this way? Will I be provided some level of, of comfort? No, he, he's not provided that. He's not offered that. He's not given that. That's not promised to him. Comfort is the farthest thing, of the, is the actual opposite of what we see that Stephen and these other men, these seven, step into as they accept this call to, to go in and to serve tables Comfort would be the last word they would use to describe this position. We'll learn here in a few weeks that comfort never came to Stephen until he died, right? We value comfort, but that's not a scriptural principle that we should prioritize. I remember hearing the story one time of a pastor. Fresh-faced, excited for ministry, never a pastor of church, and he just got out of seminary. And he knew he was called to ministry. Man, it was his passion. It was his desire. Ever since he was a teenager, he'd set this goal. He knew that this was God's calling on his life. He, he did everything that he felt like he needed to do. And here he goes. And he, he accepts this, this, this a church in another area far off. And, and he moves there. And he goes to church. And, and, and as he begins to get committed and he begins to get in the socks thing, he realizes there's nobody there to clean back. Right? He said, I've got these dreams of establishing these different ministries. I've got these dreams of going out into the community, of doing outreach. I've got these dreams of having revivals and doing all this, that, and the other. And I get there, and what I realize, the ministry they need the most, they need somebody to clean toilets. 
They need somebody to, to do some dirty things, to do some uncomfortable things, to do some unpleasant things. And he says, I did it because I knew that was the ministry that God needed me for in that moment, in that season. We don't even see it in Jesus Christ, right? We see Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and they go to the Last Supper and everything, or that, that before He sends Judas off, that He goes and He washes their feet. Now, we've all probably seen or been part of foot washing something before. We, most times, I've never seen anything too drastic in a foot washing, right? Maybe a hangnail or something like that. It's the worst I've ever seen in a foot washing. Understand the cultural context in that these they walked on roads where the cattle and everything, we drove up and back and forth, the sheep and everything, the donkeys and everything would be pulling things, and they would just poop right there in the middle of the road, right? People would throw their waste outside the windows, and it would just drain down the roads. They would walk through these streets, and these men just coming out of these bad areas, these things doing ministry that they were, walking through these streets, Jesus clothes himself with a towel, humbles himself, and goes and, and washes feet. Leading requires humility. It requires humility. I've spoken to many people, young people, old people, whatever, that have great dreams and ambitions of being in some leadership role, whether in the church or whether in the, in the career field or whatever it may be. And what I've realized, the ones that make it have a good deal of humility. And the ones that don't usually don't go too far. But humility goes two ways, right? We see that it says that they serve tables, but humility also recognizes your weaknesses, which we struggle with sometimes, right? Here's the twelve. It says the twelve son of the multitude of the disciples said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God. What are they saying? I can't do both. We are human. We are fallible. And we know that the Lord has called us to present the gospel to the world. He told us, go and tell them everything I've told you to do, everything that I've taught you, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They said, that's what our job is. We can't do this other thing. We can't feel this other role. Humility is understanding your limitations, understanding your weaknesses, understanding that you can't and, don't and aren't able to do everything. The opposite of humility is arrogance. Arrogance says, I can do it all on my own. Arrogance says, I don't need your help. Arrogance says, I've got the answers, and I don't need to listen. Arrogance is the opposite of humility. And we see the disciples, just in this verse, this just blows my mind, just in this verse, two examples of different types of humility that are necessary to lead the church, to lead the body of Christ towards the mark of the high calling. That we must accept what God has placed in front of us, even if it may we may feel it's below us. Understand, nothing in ministry, nothing is below us. Nothing is below our peer, our calling, our whatever it may we think, our title. Nothing is below us. But humility also says, I can't do it all on my own. Humility also says, I am human, and I need help. Those are the two types of humility. We must recognize, we must see, we must exemplify in our life, right? But I want to also talk that we need to be seasoned, right? I'm not talking about a good barbecue. I ain't talking about a good steak, okay? Some of you may have heard the word seasoned used in the spiritual aspect. Some of you may not have, right? It's something I grew up all the time, but it's maybe something that's a little 
Um, just, you know, something that we're not familiar with. So what does it mean to be to be seasoned, right? Being seasoned isn't necessarily just referring to the longevity of somebody's life and how long they've been around. That doesn't necessarily mean you're seasoned. Being seasoned doesn't mean that you're loud, proud, and in charge. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're seasoned. If we look at this scripture right here, verse 3, he says, Therefore, brethren, this is the twelve talking to the group, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. It says, Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This is my understanding or how I believe it means to, what it means to be seasoned. It means being made competent through trial, experience, and the working of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a pretty good way to understand being seasoned when it comes to a spiritual mindset or spiritual understanding of that, right? That we are being made competent. Competent just means that you have a pretty good handle of something through trial, experience, and the working of the Holy Spirit. But why is it important to be seasoned? Let's call a spade a spade. The church at this point, in these few verses, we're looking at a split. That's reality, right? This goes on too long. The Hellenists continue to get gypped a little bit, continue to not get treated fairly, continue to not get the same treatment as the others. Eventually, we understand that that is going to lead to a split. That, that things are not going to go well. That, that, that the Holy Spirit moving and working and blessing in the way that it had been will begin to cease because there will be this division that is already showing up in the church that will begin to grow and grow until it completely separates the two groups. And there's this division, this schism within the church that ultimately probably would have had a negative impact on the growth of the religion of Christianity. That's what they were facing. And these men, the twelve weren't ignorant to that fact, right? They weren't just like, yeah, it's just going to blow over. Ah, it'll take care of itself. Ah, we don't need to worry about this. Ah, it's no big deal. They're like, they heard the complaint, and they called the multitude together. And they said, listen, we know this is an issue. We know something needs to be done. But what they said in the last verse was, we have to focus on the gospel. We have to focus on on prayer, meditation. We have to focus on, on presenting and going to the world and telling about Jesus we can't serve tables, but we can find somebody to serve tables. They said, go find basically what we understand, some seasoned fellows. Some seasoned fellows that have been through some stuff. They've got a good reputation. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So they're being made more competent as they go along because of His working. And they've got some wisdom because of the things that they've seen, right? And here's the thing. I've seen a lot of old folks that aren't seasoned. And I've seen a lot of young folks that are very seasoned. We're not saying that Stephen and these ones they call are a bunch of grayheads. Season is a lot of times is an individual aspect of how much you're willing to commit and to submit to the Lord's working in your life. Season can be anybody, but we must be seasoned. So these the twelve they saw this. They were like, we need some seasoned fellas to help lead this group through this time where there's division, where there's complaint, where there's complexity, where there's issues going on. We need some people to lead this group to help lead this group. 
And what we understand is when life comes about and things happen that don't we don't just want to happen and bad stuff happens, you need somebody that's seasoned to guide you through that period, right? We think we're all honest. If we're out in an airplane and turbulence happens, would you rather look up there and see a seasoned pilot that's not panicking, or would you rather see a fresh-faced fella that doesn't look like he knows what he's doing? I think we'd all prefer to see somebody that's a little seasoned, not necessarily just the age, but seasoned in the trials that they face, the experience that they have, and in the spiritual aspect, being worked on through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Being seasoned also realizes that you don't approach every situation the same way. I'm not, anyway, a great gardener. But I realize that if I were to go out to an acre of untouched ground with only a hoe, I would not accomplish being able to till that ground up pretty good, would I? That's not how you approach that task with just a hoe. But I also know that if you've got beans growing up the vine, you've got some weeds around it, you're not going to take a big old tiller and try to get between those beans to rip up those weeds. Each thing has its own purpose in its time and its season. I want to take that tiller up there when I've got an acre of ground I need to break up. And I want to take that hole when I need to go in there and I need to get some weeds out from between my beans, right? Because I, because of that seasoning, that little bit of understanding, I realize that different tools, different approaches have their place in the right season, in the right time. We need to understand that as we lead, as we lead the church, as we lead people to Christ, as we lead an example of who Christ is in our life, we must understand that every situation, we don't need to approach it the exact same way. Some approaches need a gentle touch, and some approaches just need you to slap somebody. Not really, but you know, you just need to get up in there and just be up front with it. It takes the seasoning of the Holy Spirit for us to understand that. That's why they said, don't just go find some guys with a good reputation. There have been plenty of them. Don't just find some guys with just some wisdom. There have been plenty of them. They said, find some guys that are full of the Holy Spirit. Find some fellows that are seasoned. Because this ain't going to be the only issue to deal with. And how they work with this one is going to be different than how they have to deal with the other one. But we're confident if they're seasoned with the Holy Spirit, they'll figure out how to handle the next one too. And they'll realize that each thing takes its own different, unique approach own different unique approach i don't know if you've noticed but but different times different sermons different ways that gilbert teaches or different songs come from a different place because the the meaning of what they're trying to do is a little bit different right if i'm going to preach with somebody that or talk to somebody that's going through a deep troublesome time i'm going to be kind i'm going to be tender i'm going to be loving i'm going to be compassionate if i'm trying to talk to somebody that's just messed up big time and they've hurt people and stuff there's going to we're going to approach it differently the sermon that goes for conviction is going to be a little bit of the sermon a little bit different than the sermon that goes for growth right the song that's meant to challenge you to make us feel the need to be saved is going to sound differently than the song of rejoicing. The lessons that Gilbert teaches when he's teaching on the Beatitudes, it's a very teaching thing. When he's teaching on the gospel, you're going to approach it a little differently because the same tool isn't used for all areas of life and for everything that you face, right? There's no Swiss Army knife when it comes to spirituality. The Holy Spirit is the Swiss Army knife. Okay, let's say that. The Holy Spirit is the Swiss Army knife, but you use different aspects of it at different times. And it takes the seasoning to understand when and how to approach different issues, right? So he says, so we understand. Looking at the scripture, 
said, we need people. We need people that have a desire to lead the church, that want to lead these people, that want to help them, that want to minister, that want to love them. But they need to be humble. They need to be seasoned. And they need to be relatable. They need to be relatable. Verse 5. I'll read this and then we'll understand why I'm reading this. It says, And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, man full, man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Preminus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now we all read those names, and we read names, and they're just names to us, right? Those names had a clear and spe- made a clear and specific message to the church at that time. And I'll help you understand that. To go back to where we started, the Hellenists were Jews, were followers of this group that came from foreign areas, right? They were all there, came at Pentecost, or maybe they called their family and brought them in later on, whatever it may be. But they heard the message of Pentecost and they converted and they began to follow Christ, right? They, they understood that, hey, we, we are, we are going to be this, these followers of Christ. They came from afar off. Usually none of them spoke Hebrew. That was a big tale. None of them spoke Hebrew. Um, and then you also had the already established group of believers that were there, right? You had some of those that had already followed Christ for a long time. We know it wasn't just the twelve, that there was at least 500, if not more, that were really truly disciples of Christ. And then there was others that began to be converted during the time. So there were some of those that had been raised in Israel, raised around Jerusalem. They've always been there. They always knew this is how you do this, this is how you do that. This is how we do things, right? Then you had these other ones that came in from outside that still accepted Christ, but it was very clear, these people know how to speak the language, and these people don't know how to speak the language. And there's this very clear divide. And the complaint was, basically to get down to it, was the Hellenists were saying these Hebrew Jews are, are deciding within themselves that there's a hierarchy amongst the believers of Christ. And that the Hebrew Jews deserve some more, something more than the Hellenistic Jews. Right? And they said, that's our complaint. That's our issue. These are the ones that, that they're saying that we don't get as much. We aren't as equal to them. We don't have the same place within the church. We aren't as desirable as other ones because of where we came from. And they said, hey, what, what's the issue? These leaders, these ones that have been doing this all along, they're, not, they're, not, they're overlooking us. So I want you to understand, if we look at these names, the majority of these names, you look through these. I'm going to say them again because I barely get to them first up. The majority of these names come from a Greek origin. Not from a Hebrewic origin, but from a Greek origin. What's that mean? That means these people were either from the Hellenist group or they were connected to the Hellenist group. Why does that matter? The disciples understood we need people that can relate to the ones that are hurting. We need people that will look at this situation and not see two separate groups, but realize that these are people that are just as important as the Hebrew Jews, just as important as any Gentiles that walk through the door. We need people that can relate to this group that is hurting. That is hurting. This was intentional. This wasn't just happenstance. This was intentional. They understood what they were doing. Now, I want to clarify. Being relatable doesn't mean you just do ministry with people that are like you. Being relatable means find some way to relate to anybody that needs to be ministered to. I want to say that again. Being relatable doesn't mean you just minister to people that are like you. It means that you find some way to relate to the people that need ministering to. Amen? Even if it seems like they are from another planet, 
and you're like, how can I relate to this person? We can find ways to relate to people. We are all of the human race, right? There's a place. You're going to relate to 50% of the people that are on the planet because if you're a man, you'll relate to that 50%. If you're a woman, you'll relate to that 50%, right? I mean, Caucasian is still the majority in America. There's that relation. But even if it's somebody from another race, other ethnicity, from another country, there's still ways that we can relate to people. And relating to people opens doors that would not be opened otherwise. Listen, these people, the Hellenists, they had already been turned aside by Hebrew Jews. If all of these disciples, which is what we understand, they, or all these deacons, ended up being just uh, more Hebrew Jews, they would not have been open to it. They'd say, here we go again. They don't get us. They don't understand us. They've not been where we were at. They don't know what it means to come into a new place and leave your home and family. They don't get us. They don't understand us. But instead, they chose... Several of these have some connection to a foreign land or a foreign group, or at least their lineage comes from that foreign place, so that they could connect with people, so that they can relate with them. I read a book, I think it's called The Ways of the Shepherd. And it's it's a it's an overarching it connects with spirituality a lot, but it also goes into business. But I love this book. And it talks about leadership in general. And it says one of the ways of the shepherd is that the shepherd knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And he kind of gives this example of what somebody told him one time. He said, somebody told me. He went and hung out with some shepherds to get to understand them. And he said, I was told once that, that a good shepherd will smell like his sheep because he's been with his sheep. He said, if you get next to a shepherd and they have nothing in common with their sheep, if they don't smell like them, if they don't have some of the same issues that their sheep do, if they don't have some of the same thistles and briars caught up in their clothing that they see in their sheep, they're not a good shepherd. But if you see a shepherd that, that, that just has been around them, right, they smell like them. They go and they drink from the same river as them. They go and they do things with them. They sleep in the same pen with them. You know that's a good shepherd because he's been with his sheep. He's related to them. He is connected with them. He has got close to them so that they know Him and that they know that He cares. If we go through life and and we're not finding ways to relate to those that we are trying to minister to, then we're not going to have the success that we need ministering to them. If we go to those that are in desperate need of help, listen, Maybe all of us might not understand what it means to look like to be through addiction. But we've all been through sin. We might not understand what it's like to be through a divorce. But we've lost things, right? We've, we've grieved things. We might not have lost our parents yet. But more than likely, if you've been here long, you've lost somebody. You might not understand everything that person is facing. But get close to them. Relate to them. Hear them. Get to know them. One of the most harmful things we do sometimes is we just go and, and we tell somebody, you need to be, you need to follow Jesus. And then we turn our backs and walk away. That's not effective ministry in any way, fashion, or form, right? We have to relate and get to know the people we are ministering to. What I want you to think about, I want you to think about it this way. We minister to people, whether in our church, whether through food pantry, for youth, we do. You know, we've had events 
past couple of weeks with VBS and the back to school bash. And a lot of people say, you know, if you see somebody and they're different from you, just imagine Jesus. Well, maybe that's a good way to go. Here's what I want you to do. If you see somebody that's destitute and in a bad place and going through all kinds of difficult things, I want you to look at that and I want you to think of yourself in the worst situation you were ever in. And that way you can relate with them. That way you can be like, I've been there. Maybe not exactly there, but I've been low. I've been hurt. I've been stricken. I've been aggrieved. I've been broken. And you look at that person like, man, I just don't know how I can relate to them. Think of the worst situation you were ever in and realize you've been in that that kind of world of hurt, of grief, of pain, of suffering, of brokenness, whatever you want to call it, that you've been down that path too so that you can relate to them, so that you can connect with them, so that they know that you're just not some highfalutin nose in the air. If it it rains, you drown because you're so high, high up and mighty, right? That they realize that you are human and that you are somebody that cares. We have to relate to people. We have to relate to people. In closing, just to, to sum it all up, right? Just for really felt as we as we you know, kind of tied the, the the sermon together and, and finished things up, it's like the Holy Spirit said, "This is just this, this is just this is what it is, right? This is the the main thing. We want to lead. We want to effectively lead our church into the realm that God wants us to be in. That we want to effectively lead people to Christ. That we want to effectively be leaders in our community for the cause of Christ. We have to be humble, and being humble reminds us of the importance." what we do. What we do, no matter how little or how great, is important to the cause of Christ. Being seasoned enables us to do what we do well. Do it well. Being relatable allows what we do to impact those we do it for. You can give somebody all kinds of something, and if you don't show them that you care, in any other way. It won't mean as much. But if you get down there and you help clean that floor or you help pick them up or you help do whatever it may be, they realize that they can relate to you and then what you're trying to do will actually find ground to stand on. Amen. So being humble reminds us of the, reminds us the importance of what we do. Being seasoned enables us to do what we do well. Being relatable allows what we do to impact those that we do it for. And that's the sermon. That's what